Hi, everyone. Welcome to the third day of the VoiceDAO Sustainable Finance Summit. My name is Yamur, and I'm studying economics and social entrepreneurship at NYU. And I'm representing VoiceDAO at NYU. Today, we're hosting Michael Schumann. He's an economist, author, and a leading visionary on community economics. Thank you, Michael, for being here with us today. Michael, My thank pleasure. you. Thank you. Sorry. Uh, thank you again for being here, Michael. Um, and thank you to our audience. My name is Andrew Shapiro, and I'm representing on behalf of Boys Dow at Cornell. So today's panel is titled, How Local Investing Creates Impact. Uh, and both Yammer and I will be hosting a rigorous discussion about how local investing can help catalyze change within our community. Michael will give us a brief presentation about his expertise area, and then we'll spend around 30 to 40 minutes having a discussion about local investing. With the remaining 10 to 15 minutes, we'll open up the discussion to the audience for a session of live question and answer. Now I'm going to pass it over to Yammer before we begin. Thank you to everyone who's listening to us today. Don't forget to send your questions. We'll ask them in the last part. We appreciate your participation and we hope that you enjoy our conversation. So Michael, you can start sharing your screen and we can hand it over to you. Great. Thank you so much for the kind introduction. Um, and uh, you may or may not know this, but uh, in addition to my doing a lot of research and writing on local investment, I teach business school. Uh, I teach in Bard's Green MBA program and uh, several different courses on economic development, on economics, and on social mission. Um, and really, I regard your organization in this talk as kind of a synthesis of all of those issues. And I thought before we get our conversation going, I just share some preliminary ideas about why local investment should even be on your radar screen. Uh, this is my most recent book, Put Your Money Where Your Life Is. It gives the general case for local investment and also lays out how you can direct your pension fund savings uh, into local investment opportunities using self-directed IRAs and solo 401ks. I think one way of understanding the importance of local investment is to understand the moment we're in economically. And yes, we all know the big picture of the economy. Unemployment is low. Uh, inflation is relatively high. Uh, there's a lot of uncertainty about where the economy is heading. But it's worth underscoring that we know the economy has not been great for local businesses, that massive numbers of local businesses have died or are dying despite the various CARES Acts that were intended to come to their rescue. And it's really important for community vitality that we figure out how to get more capital into the hands of these critical local businesses if we want our communities to thrive. This is a study that was done in 2017, looking at the impact of a dollar spent in a co-op, a grocery co-op in Seattle called Central Co-op versus a dollar that goes into a similarly sized chain grocery store. And what it shows is that basically for every dollar that goes into the local co-op, 
50 cents gets respent locally. Whereas when the same dollar goes into a chain grocer, it's more like 25 cents. And the practical implication is that uh, if the central co-op were put out of business by a chain grocer, Seattle would lose net about 150 jobs. So it's a very significant impact when local businesses spend the money locally and increase the local multiplier. And there have been studies like this done comparing similar businesses, similar industries, one locally owned, one not. Uh, and they all show that the locally owned business or industry, because of its multiplier effects, generates two to four times the jobs and other economic development impacts. And there really is no study that has contradicted that. But you don't have to take my word for it. This is from the Harvard Business Review in the summer of 2010. It's a regression analysis of communities across the United States and shows that in those communities with the highest density of locally owned business, there is the highest per capita job growth rate. But there's also this study from the Federal Reserve in Atlanta in 2013 that looked at counties across the United States. And in those counties with the highest density of locally owned business, there is the highest per capita income growth rate. So in other words, if you're interested in bringing down levels of poverty and expanding levels of social equality, promoting the health of locally owned business is a pretty good way of doing that. And there's a bunch of other benefits we know that come from the local business community. Local businesses carry the DNA, say in restaurants or stores or hotels that draw tourists to a unique place. We know that local businesses are where most startups and entrepreneurship occurs. There's now a public health literature that shows that local food businesses are one of the places where communities usually start focusing on their local businesses and an expansion of local food businesses reduces levels of obesity and type two diabetes. There is a political science literature that shows that local business communities have higher rates of participation, voting participation, and volunteership. And there's also a literature out there that shows that local business communities tend to be somewhat more self-reliant. And through that greater self-reliance, they have lower carbon and other pollution footprints. So there's a lot of reasons for us to embrace local businesses. The problem is, how do you get finance into them? And here's the thing. You don't have to move a lot of capital in order to have a huge difference on your economy. This is a study that I did in Metro Cleveland with two other people about 10 years ago called the 25% shift. And it looks at the impact of consumers in the Cleveland area shifting their expenditures 25% from non-local food to local food. And just that little act, again, because of the multiplier effects, 
can produce 27,000 new jobs that generate about $900 million in new wages and $126 million in new state and local tax revenues. Now, in order to achieve that goal, you would need to invest, we calculated, about three quarters of a billion dollars in food and farming businesses. Now, that sounds like a lot of money, but that's this little red stripe on the left. It turns out to be 1% of what Clevelanders have in their bank accounts and one quarter of what 1% of what Clevelanders have in their pension fund. So the point is, is that even a very modest shift of our investment behavior from Wall Street into local businesses can make a huge difference in the vitality of our local economy. We also know, and this is really important, that local businesses are a lot more profitable than we think. Uh, there aren't good data on this from the United States, but if you look north in Canada, where the economy is not wildly different than ours, and profit rates, it turns out the highest profit rates in Canadian businesses are those businesses with 10 to 20 employees. And the least profitable businesses are those with over 500 employees. So over time, I believe that that will lead to higher rates of return to local investors and local businesses. For complicated reasons, that may not be the case today. So given all of these benefits of local business, local businesses actually comprise uh, depending on how you measure it, 60 to 80% of our economy. Uh, they are highly profitable, highly competitive. We know they do wonderful things for our economy. Surely all of you listening are invested in local business. But if we were able to do a live in-person survey here, what we would discover is that those of you with any forms of pension savings, uh, whether an IRA or, or, or a 401k, we would find that almost none of your money was being invested in local businesses. In other words, you, like the rest of America, are systematically over-investing in Wall Street and under-investing, probably not investing at all, in local business. And this capital market failure is why local investment is so important. If we could fix this capital market failure, if we could get, say, 60% of the capital that we invest as households right now and put that into the 60% of the economy that's local business, that would mean an additional $100,000 of investment capital per capita in your community. So take the population of your community, multiply by $100,000, and that's the payoff of getting local investment right. Let me stop there, and then we can open it up for deeper discussion. Thank you so much for that presentation, Michael. I really felt like, you know, if our communities thrive, humanity can thrive too, and we can create a sustainable future. And local investing seems to be critical for community vitality and getting more capital into um, local businesses can really help us achieve a sustainable future. 
Um, and you mentioned market failure, and we really need to fix this market failure if we want to create a sustainable finance and if we want to achieve the um, the health of local businesses, also the health of societies, right? Because um, as you were saying, um, it's not just about returns to investors, but it's about the increments in new wages and new uh, job opportunities that can uh, help us achieve long-term economic development. And the impact of local investing looks like it is like impressing due to the multiplier effect. And uh, thank you for sharing that presentation. So we can start with our questions. And I also want to remind again to our audience, if you want to submit questions, feel free to do so. We'll ask towards the end of our conversation. There you go, Andrew. Yeah, for sure. Um, just to reiterate what uh, Yammer said first, I think that it seems like such an obvious uh, thing that we should be doing is more local and community-based um, investing. So that kind of leads into the first question we have for you today, um, being that people know you for being a community economist. Um, and so we wanted to know what exactly does this entail um, and what is in the value of engaging in community-based economics in the study of it? That's, that's a really interesting question. Thank you for that. Most of students who take economics uh, will take core courses in microeconomics and macroeconomics. Microeconomics is the study of a firm from a firm's eye view of how to optimize production. And macroeconomics is largely from the position of the national government, the nation state. And my contention is, is that most of the action, at least when it comes to local, uh, local economic development, is happening in between. So a community economist is really someone who tries to interpolate between those two views, the macro and the micro, and come up with really practical solutions for how to shape economic development, entrepreneurship, and the expansion of businesses in a community. Thank you so much for your answer. Um, yeah, as an econ student, I always feel like, you know, micro doesn't cover, macro doesn't really cover. Like, they are relevant and they do give us the relevant frameworks and principles of how economics functions, but they do not uh, really allow me to have a deeper understanding of how might we create uh, better economics for the sake of, you know, efficiency, for the sake of society. Um, I also want to ask, you know, you're passionate about local investing as opposed to the traditional Wall Street investing. How did you come across the importance of local investing? So in a way, so I've written 10 books um, and half of them are on local economies. And each book on local economies has kind of opened up a set of questions that the next book answers. Um, and uh, I wrote, my first book was called The Lo um, Going Local, uh, which was really more of a kind of what's the theory of local economics. And then I had a book called The Small Mart Revolution, which was focused on how businesses can take advantage of shrinking economies of scale. But I realized in writing that book that one of the gaps that was not easily fixed was in capital. So the next book that I wrote was called Local Dollars, Local Sense as a way of answering that gap. And 
one further gap that I saw is that it's extremely difficult for people to invest their pension funds uh, using traditional instruments like 401ks or IRAs. And that's what led to the most recent book, The Local Economy Solution. So I, I think that's part of it. Um, I recognize that, you know, we can talk about local purchasing all day long uh, as a way of strengthening local business, and it's important. But at the end of the day, the decision about where you buy a $10 hammer, for example, is trivial compared to where you have a $500,000 mortgage or where you are putting a million dollars of your retirement savings. And those decisions are so important for the local economy. I think that's why I have come to focus on them now. Thank you so much for your answer. Um, can I also ask you to talk about the buy local movement? Yeah, so the buy local movement, I think is still going on every time you go to a farmer's market, you're seeing a manifestation of the buy local movement, or you see advertisements, we're a local bank, we're a local restaurant, we serve local food. Um, it's all part of buying local. And I, so, and, and I guess one thing that I will say about it is that um, it was 20 years ago regarded as a weird thing to advocate. It was present in almost no economic development policies. Uh, and it was seen as just, you know, a, a tr you know, something that was not good for the economy because we it's for some reason people interpret it as being against a free economy. Um, and what we've seen, I think, over the 20 years since is that most economic development strategies now are incorporating something around local purchasing. I think there, there's an appreciation that if you get more people in your community to buy local, it will create income, wealth, and jobs. And the economic critique of it was really just fundamentally misguided. Um, the economic critique of it was, well, buying local is a trade barrier. Um, and if we put a barrier, uh, any barrier to people purchasing you know, the cheapest goods available and those cheapest goods are outside the community, that's gonna hurt the community. But that's not what buy local is. Buy local has nothing to do with trade barriers. It has nothing to do with impeding technology transfer. Uh, buying local is simply about consumer choice. And consumer choice is the cornerstone of good economic policy and practice. And when a consumer freely chooses to buy local because they see benefits in it, when a business freely chooses to buy local because they see benefits in it, uh, it is not a constraint on the economy. It's a celebration that people's choices differ and we see the world differently. And this is the way of maximizing not just 
one bottom line, but all bottom lines for your community. Yeah, and um, as you mentioned, the bi-local movement has, like you said, it was 20 years ago, not as uh, prevalent in economics and stuff, and it's gained a lot more um, visibility today and a lot more people uh, are aware of it. I know in my hometown in upstate New York, we have radio ads that are promoting the buy local and people going to the farmer's market on Saturday and Sunday. So definitely a lot more visibility today um, than when it started and then when you, and when you wrote the uh, going local book. So um, maybe if you could speak a little bit more on what, what have been kind of the key factors that have caused this um, and what it, would you say are some of the leading achievements of the localist movement? Um, and if you give some examples, that'd be great too. Yeah. So um, I, I think a, a lot of this has been driven by the failures of the globalization vision, um, at least globalization, you know, 1.0, or, or maybe if we consider, you know, the British Empire 1.0, that globalization more modern is globalization 2.0. But starting with the Battle of Seattle in the late 1990s, there was a lot of public pushback against the vision of globalization. And I think what, what the architects of globalization have not appreciated is that the theory of the gains from free trade need to be counterbalanced with what is imposed upon losers, who are the winners, and is the marketplace that we're facing fair. And I think a growing number of communities in the United States have decided that uh, actually the vision of outsourcing things like manufacturing and getting rid of those high paying jobs and instead converting everyone in our communities to low paid workers at Walmart or Amazon distribution centers, that's not a very exciting vision of the future. Uh, but that is where globalization has taken us. And I think what, what we've seen is pushback, although it initially came from the left, uh, a lot of the rise of Donald Trump as a candidate and then as president was from the conservative side, a pushback against the free trade ideas as well. So I think there's kind of a coalition of people on the left and right who believe that we need to restore more vitality with our communities. Um, there's maybe a difference on what communities they focus on. Progressives focus on more communities of color, more urban communities. Conservatives focus more on rural communities and small towns. But both are really struggling for the same thing. So. What I would say is that that coalition, that political coalition, has led to a number of visible victories. So one is, as I mentioned before, I think the focus of economic development has really shifted. Now, it used to be that economic development was 99% about the attraction of outside companies and paying big incentives uh, which are really just, you know, another word for subsidies in order to induce them to come in. Um, I would say it, that 
type of economic development, while it still goes on, is really the it's the minority of what's going on in economic development. That more and more communities have really looked at this broader local economy agenda. So that's one victory. A second victory is in the area of finance. Um, and for me, this was the sweetest victory because um, in uh, the local, in, in local dollars, local cents, I identified lots and lots of problems in our securities laws that needed to be fixed if we were going to facilitate more local investment. Um, and, you know, I, along with a lot of other people, really pushed initially at the federal level and then at state levels to reshape securities laws. And the Jobs Act was passed in 2012 that legalized investment crowdfunding. It went into effect in 2016. And as of today, more than a million people have invested more than a billion dollars in about 6,000 local businesses. And the primary beneficiaries have been businesses led by women and people of color. All of that is a manifestation of this one victory in changing securities law. And I think that growth is going to continue to happen. Um, but it's just the beginning. And I don't want to overstate this because securities laws is, are not just around the issuance of securities, but they're also around the trading of securities, say in stock exchanges, they're around the pooling of securities and investment funds. They're around the use of securities for pension investments. That's covered by ERISA. So each of these things requires reform, and we got a lot of work still to do. Awesome. Um, and yeah, you mentioned like at the end there, uh, we need reform in a lot of these areas and some of the trade-offs that come with globalization and the localist efforts and the um, the pressures coming in from like uh, coalitions on both the left and right side of things fighting for the same end goal. Um, and our next kind of question kind of ties into something that affects um, uh, many people across the country. So most of our audience is well aware of the increasing divide between our nation's richest and those who live in poverty. And so um, I want you to talk a little bit about to what extent localist efforts address the nation's rapidly growing wealth and income gaps, especially uh, from the pandemic. Uh, we've seen that definitely in recent times. Um, right. Are these localist efforts a viable long-term solution? Yes. Um, very, really important question. And I, what I would argue first is, let, let's go back to that study that was done by the Federal Reserve in 2013 that shows that a community with a lot of diverse small businesses is going to be the greatest at paying the highest wages and lowering income inequality. Um, so, so the data are there. We know that there is a connection between these things. Now, the exact causality chain is, I think, there's still some PhD theses that need to be written on all this. I can speculate a little bit on what I think is going on with that. But what I would also say is that poverty 
needs to be understood as not just the absence of income with specific individuals or families. Poverty needs to be understood as an economy that is very thin. What I mean by thin is that when a dollar comes into the economy, if an economy is diversified, most of that dollar gets respent again and again and again. And with the multiplier effect, you have income, wealth, and jobs. When you have a very thin economy, dollars leak out. Um, I've been doing a lot of work the last two or three years with Native American reservations. And some of them have staggeringly high leakage rates. Um, one reservation I've just done an analysis for, they have a leakage rate of close to 80%. So for every dollar that goes in, instantly 80 cents leaves that community. Well, to really raise that community, it's not about income transfers. I mean, yes, you can make that case. It's really about creating a lot more native businesses in that reservation and the surrounding area so that as money comes in, whether it's from business, private sources, or federal transfer payments, those dollars continue to circulate. So diversification of an economy is absolutely critical to ending poverty. Now, what I'll further say is that, you know, you can trace the poverty of Native Americans and the poverty of African Americans to very specific and specifically um, discriminatory practices. So with African Americans, you know, you can go back to slavery and Jim Crow and then redlining of places which made it very difficult for African Americans to hold property and those inequalities have led to um, racially segregated communities. Um, and, and, and that segregation plays out in unequal schools and unequal um, uh, populations of the prisons today. So, so you really can see this sort of continuity and changing the rules of the road around capital, around housing, around investment, around banking, and really getting rid of redlining once and for all is pretty critical in helping uh, to move African Americans forward. And with Native Americans, you know, it's similar, but but actually as bad or worse. And you know, with Native American reservations, you had mass extermination, people being put into reservations far away from where their original economies were. They were given parcels of land that had very few resources, or at least that was the understanding. And then alas, uh, oil, gas, coal, timber, other things were discovered. And those are what you know the more successful native reservations have tapped into. But most of the land that native Americans have is held in trust by the Bureau of Indian Affairs, which means that if they want to build a business on land held in trust by the Bureau of Indian Affairs, you have to get permission. 
and you probably are not going to be able to get a mortgage in order to build a store or a factory there. So there's really fundamental shifts in the rules of the road here that we're going to need for Native American communities uh, to move forward. I mean, personally, I would like to just flick the switch and say, all land held in trust hereby is your land. That would be an easy thing to do, uh, although I'm sure very controversial. Um, but, but, you know, this is where local economy practice and policy can't solve all of these historic legacies. But if you can simultaneously work on, you know, getting rid of some of these bad policies of the past and put the, you know, the metal, uh, the push, push the pedal to the metal on the better local policies, I think you can start solving these problems. And if I could say just one last thing, when I think about reparations for African-American communities, what I think about is creating new security law exemptions that make it easy for every community to create a local investment fund and give people a tax credit for putting money into that fund that really focuses, and those funds focus on nurturing uh, businesses led by people of color. That's what real reparations will look like. Thank you so much for touching on these important issues because, you know, we can never um, separate anything. Like history is a course, it's been following one event follows the other. And it, again, like yesterday in another panel, we were talking about how capitalism and this wealth that people use to invest is based on uh, free slavery. And it's important to acknowledge these in order to uh, create futures for people where they can thrive, where they have access to land and resources, you know, to creating a more uh, equitable future. So from what I hear, systems thinking perspective is crucial to restore vitality in our communities. And, you know, you talked about like the importance of community a lot. And I, I think that um, the concept of community is almost disappearing now. The world is changing. And across the world, vast amounts of people are part of a like large migratory community, and um, communities disappearing in the metropolitan lifestyle. So people order from Amazon, and you know we're losing touch with our people. Polarization and othering is a big issue. We're very individualistic in a sense, and. Uh, I'm from Turkey and in Istanbul, we have these small bakkals, which are essential like the delis, like the grocery stores that are owned by local people who live there. And now they're all replaced by large grocery stores. And uh, in this climate, I feel like it's getting harder to find local businesses to invest in as well. So I want to ask, how can people invest in their com communities if the concept of community is disappearing and if global giants are shading local companies? Yeah, uh, it's something. It's something that I struggle with all the time, and I think the the, the outlook is better, or I, I feel the outlook is better than than um, the way you've just stated it, um, for a couple of reasons. First of all, I don't think people have lost their love or need for community. Uh, they've just lost access to the things that used to comprise their community. And 
Um, I, if anything, I think the pandemic, I mean, I don't know if this is true in Turkey, but I feel like in the United States, the pandemic has really caused people to embrace a lot of elements of their community that they've forgotten about. Like when, when restaurants, you know, closed down, when their places for gathering were not available to them, boy, did they notice, and they still notice that. Um, and as we've, you know, moved our work lives more into our homes, what goes on in, you know, within a mile of our home, what that economy looks like has become more and more important to people. Um, but you're right that when you look at things like Amazon and chain stores and chain grocery stores, um, there have been, there has been, even before the pandemic, a tremendous loss of local businesses. Here's what people, I think, do not appreciate. In the United States, when you look at jobs by sector, retail comprises about 7% of the economy. Now, people think that retail, when you ask someone who does not study the data at all, what do you think retail is? They would say 40%, 50%, because that's where most of us encounter the economy. But in point of fact, retail is small and shrinking, right? And, and so it's true that in retail, local businesses have taken a real shellacking and have lost a lot of their competitive edge. But in the other 93% of the economy, local businesses are actually doing better. Um, and one reason for this is that in the United States, and this is true in much of their world, there has been a shift from goods to services. Now, I will add a little footnote to that because in the pandemic, there was a minor shift back uh, from services to goods, but that's just a blip, really. When I was a kid, um, so I grew up in New York, uh, <clears throat> late 1950s, early 1960s. When you looked at my family's expenditures, something like two thirds of what we spent our money on was goods and one third on services. Today, service expenditures by households are close to 80%. Now, the thing about services is that they are inherently competitive at the local level. Um, yes, there's a few boutique -y things that people will get from telemedicine and, you know, dock in the box. But at the end of the day, we want our service providers to be close to us and people we know and we trust. And those personal relationships around service services, I think, are going to continue. And I think that this trend away from goods and toward services will continue for lots of other reasons, some of them environmental, some of them increasing cost, difficulty, uh, risks of international transport of heavy goods. Um, so I, I see local businesses as becoming increasingly competitive. And, and in that context, I see a brighter future for my concept of community. 
Yeah, before Andrew asks the question, I just want to say I really appreciate that you pointed out the need and desire for a community. And I'm pretty sure, as you said, like we all have that. And uh, definitely I appreciated your we want COVID. And that was true. We faced something globally and we became a community. You know, uh, I think COVID was an example of an incident that happened to the world where polarization was maybe less in smaller communities, not like globally, but just in our own communities, it brought us together. Um, you can have the state Andrew. Yeah, and I think that um, your point about moving towards the services as opposed to goods is really interesting. Um, I was looking at the CNBC article the other day that kind of talked about that same thing of just even like the people employed in manufacturing goods industries as opposed to services has definitely changed over the past um, 30 years even. Um, and so that's a trend we're gonna continue to see. And uh, hopefully it'll help out the local investing side of things as well. Um, and so the next question we want to move into um, is a little bit centered around one of the uh, books that you authored. And so seven years ago, um, for those of you who aren't familiar, uh, Michael published the Local Economy Solution: How Innovative Self-Financing Pollinator Enterprises Can Grow Jobs and Prosperity. So um, could you tell a little bit about pollinator model and how it can scale across communities um, and create systemic change? Yeah. So. The idea of a pollinator is really, it's, de it's derived from inspiration from the bee. Um, so, you know, the, the function of a bee in an ecosystem is to carry pollens from plant to plant. And in creating this more diversified pollinated ecosystem, plants, animals, and other life around that ecosystem can thrive. Um, significantly, no one has to pay the bee to do this work. Uh, the bee just does it naturally and lives off the environment. So to me, there's a powerful analogy there. Uh, if you think about economic development, the worst way of doing economic development right now is to uh, spend all of your money attracting outside companies. Um, it's the worst way of doing economic development because number one, chances are good you're gonna fail at it because the vast majority of, of, of cities that bid for outside companies are losers. But even if you're a winner, you lose too because what you've paid per job is in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. If you focus on local businesses and local job creation, you probably can squeeze that down to about $500 to $1,000 per job. And, and that's the thing that has really captured the attention of a lot of economic developers that, uh, gee, you know, all things, leave aside everything else about these attraction policies, it's just too damn expensive. Um, so I think though that a city or a county can go even further. I think you can squeeze down those expenses further by actually uh, transforming a cost into revenue. And what I mean by that is, you can come up with, say, a model for a community bank that breaks even or does better. You can come up with a model for a local investment fund that breaks even or does better. 
you can come up with a model for running a local stock market that breaks even or does better. You can come up with a model for doing an incubator that breaks even or does better. Most incubators are not structured that way, but they can. So what the local economy solution really outlines are three dozen different kinds of economic development entities uh, that have figured out ways of, of making money while promoting entrepreneurship and local finance and local purchasing and local partnerships, even local policymaking. There are ways of doing some of that in ways that, that are revenue positive. Um, so re really what, what, what a pollinator can and should be is an invitation for a community to reinvent economic development and transform it from a cost center to a revenue center. Thank you so much for explaining it. In case uh, our audience is curious about Michael's books, I'm dropping his website in the chat. You can check it out there. Um, we can also slowly switch towards the question and answer session. Um, I want to start by asking Ben Hiller, Hillier's question. He asks, if your choice of pension is the most important factor to help local communities ac access capital, how can an individual make sure they're picking the right one? Well, uh, the right pension fund? Um, yeah. So here's the problem. Almost any pension policy that you will find available through a public employer or a private employer will not have any local investment options in it whatsoever. So in order to transform your pension investments into local investment, you have to create one of two kinds of vehicles. One is called the self-directed IRA, which any person can set up. Um, and if you shop around, it'll cost you, you know, maybe uh, you probably can get by with, you know, $200 a year to set, to set up a self-directed IRA. And then basically you're hiring an outside custodian who you then direct to reinvest your, your pension savings. Uh, the solo 401k is a more powerful tool. <clears throat> it's available to people who are self-employed. Um, so I'm largely self-employed. So, uh, you know, I have a solo 401k. And um, with a solo 401k, you manage the money in your own bank account. It has to be a dedicated bank account for your own trust fund, effectively. Uh, and then you can make decisions about where you want to invest your funds. Um, and if there is a local crowdfunding deal or a nonprofit, you want to help with build a building, or there is a local municipal bond offering you want to put your money into, you can do any of those things with your money. The solo 401k is more powerful than a self-directed IRA because number one, you can put a lot more money into it every year. So with a self-directed IRA, you can put in six to 7,000 a year. With a solo 401k, there are ways you can put in over $100,000 per year. Uh, 
Um, another difference is uh, it is cheaper and easier to administer the account yourself. And another thing is with a solo 401k, you can take a loan from your account for up to five years and pay yourself back uh, at a very low interest rate. So say you've got a high level of credit card debt, put money into your solo 401k, take a big loan, pay yourself back, and you can get out of credit card debt almost instantly and save massive finance charges with credit cards. I did that, by the way, and saved about $100,000. Oh, that's awesome. It's great to see that there's these um, opportunities available um, for people that aren't ma mainly those uh, high wealthy accredited Wall Street investors to gain access to local investing. Um, and there's those toolkits available, like you mentioned, with 401k um, to make smart financial planning decisions. So. Um, and so, yeah, I want to move on to our next question um, from Sarah Brockman. Um, she asks, I wanted to ask about the role carbon markets can play in funding a transition toward climate smart agricultural practices. Um, and are carbon credits the future for star startup financing for smallholder or large scale farmers since federal policy, at least in the US, is not a streamlined process for quick funding? So, yeah, I mean, I so a couple of things that I agree with with all, all of the things in that question. So, yeah, farmers markets are proliferating. I think they're going to be more come more common. Uh, I think there is. I mean, we're starting to see for the first time an expansion of the number of farmers that we have. Uh, first time in a hundred years, and increasingly they are younger people. So the average age of farmers is now going down. I mean, somewhere it's somewhere around sixty right now. So it's just beginning to trend a little bit lower. So I think yeah. There's interest in creating competitive local food systems, and people are very smart about it, too. I mean, I think there's increasing use of things like um, aquaculture to grow local fish and hydroponics um, in order to, you know, grow uh, vegetables and fruits in adverse climates. Um, I think a lot of the things that people are doing with animal husbandry, you know, uh, is interesting. I think the movement beyond meat is interesting. Um, so yeah, the food system is really changing and uh, young people in particular, I think are really committed to rethinking food in ways that brings down the carbon content. Let me just say one further thing about decarbonization, which is you cannot achieve any of the goals of decarbonization unless you embrace localization. It is an impossibility. Now, I'm not saying that localization solves all problems of carbon emissions, but it's a necessary if insufficient condition of restructuring the world. And one of the things that you get out of localization is the passing of innovations from city to city. Uh, about 10 years ago, I did a study for the Gates Foundation called Community Food Enterprises. Uh, and it was a partnership with the Wallace Center for Sustainable Agriculture. And we did profiles of 24 local food businesses and we're looking at 
what helped them to succeed? How were these smallish businesses achieving economies of scale? One of the most surprising findings of that study was that almost every business we looked at had international partners. That is, they were transferring their models to partners all over the world. So there were sister restaurants and sister grocery stores and sister farmers. And by transferring what works, that is how we decarbonize. By transferring energy efficiency and new ways of doing low carbon food systems, that is where we're going to make progress. I do, you know, I like, I like, you know, carbon credits. I like carbon taxation. Um, I think the only way we're going to get those is at state and local level. I don't see movement at the national level to act on that fast enough. But if, you know, state and local authorities start to do creative work on all these things, that also will be transferred from community to community. That was a very deep answer. Thank you so much. Um, like decarbonization is a very important issue. And actually, we're going to talk about it on Saturday in another panel as well. You're more than welcome to come. As you're saying, I was just like, you know, researching about the other company and um, these carbon offsetting carbon credit tools, they are steps to achieve sustainability. But as you said, they will not be the solutions. Our solutions will rely on um, applying a systems thinking perspective, you know, prioritizing local investing because no one tool will solve it, right? So um, actually this question by the audience was very tying to our last question that we wanted to ask. Um, so our final question is, how might we manage the 21st century sustainability crisis? Do you think we'll be able to overcome climate change? How can local investing help us? Yeah, well, uh, I wouldn't be here if I didn't think we could succeed. Um, uh, I would be vacationing until I perished. Um, but I think all of us, you know, look, the glass, there may only be a 10% chance of our making it as a species with this and other perils that we face ahead. But I think you have to embrace the glass as 10% full rather than 90% empty. And that's, you know, that's what we've got to throw our energy into. And you know, on behalf of my generation, I want to say, I'm sorry we failed you and we left you in a terrible predicament of what you have to achieve. Um, but <clears throat> I think it can be achieved. I, I, am, I am optimistic. Um, <clears throat> and again, I think what I see is that communities that embrace sustainability can become more self-reliant. Um, and I think it's entirely reasonable for a community of 100,000 people to have 90% of its economy in local goods and services. And the rest is what you import non-locally. And, and you know if we can bring down our collective level of imports and increase our level of local self-reliance, I think that's basically what the definition of sustainability is. 
25 years ago, um, Gro Harlem Brundtland in a study called Our Common Future defined sustainability as meeting the needs of the current generation without sacrificing the ability of future generations to meet their needs was a good definition, but it left out place. And I think a better definition of sustainability is can a community meet its own needs present and future without impairing the ability of other communities to meet their needs present and future? And I think with that formulation, I go back to what I said earlier, that, that the great thing about localization is you have an obligation to share the best of your sustainability practices with partners internationally, because we are in a planetary emergency. National governments aren't rising to the challenge. So local governments can and should. Awesome. Well, thank you, Michael. Um, I think that leaves us a lot of hope for the future um, with sustainability and localist movements. And hopefully that can help us combat some of these uh, global crises around the world and uh, leave a better world for the future and for our present to live in. Um, so I think, I guess I'll, I'll pass it to you to wrap up if you have any final thoughts or um, I know I know you had a slide with more contact information at the end there, if you wanna share that. Oh yeah, I can, let me, let me do that. Thank you for that invitation. Um, so uh, this is where you can find me. Um, and that's my email, schumann at igc.org, my website, my Twitter handle. But more importantly, what I'd say is that if any of you are interested in learning more about local investment, um, I've been doing courses um, outside of my business school courses. I've been doing courses for grassroots groups in different states around the United States over the last year. We had courses in Washington State and New Hampshire, uh, in uh, Alaska, in Rhode Island. So if people there want to organize any deep dives into local investment, please get in touch with me and we can talk about all of that. But thank you very much for inviting me. I appreciate being able to share some ideas with you folks today. Thank you so much for being with us here today. It was a thrilling conversation. We really appreciate your time. Thank you. It was nice to meet you. Goodbye, everyone. Have a nice day. I'm everyone else. See you. We, we have a, a 430 panel today as well. Um, if you're free, then anyone who wants to come to that as well.